In August of the year 386, in a city called Milan, there was a young North African scholar who was spending time with a group of friends outdoors when he heard a child singing these words, pick it up and read, pick it up and read. He racked his brain trying to figure out what song the child was singing, but he couldn't think of it and he couldn't figure out what this possibly could mean. As a child, this man had been exposed to Christianity, uh, but he had utterly rejected it. He was one of the great scholars of his time, and he had come to the conclusion that the whole thing was a pack of lies. His name was Augustine. Many of you know him with our American accent of Augustine. His name was Augustine. By 386, he had become one of the most prominent scholars in the Latin world. He had many concubines. He fathered a child out of wedlock. He lived essentially however he wanted. He was the playboy of his day. But hearing that song, he felt as if God were telling him to pick up the Bible and to read it. Couldn't explain why. Pick up and read, pick up and read, saying the child. And Augustine couldn't help but say, maybe it's the Bible. He picked up a Bible. He hadn't picked one up in a long time, and he turned to any random page. It happened to be Romans Chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, he read, Do not live in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual excess and lust, not in quarreling and jealousy. Rather, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. Reading that scripture, he said it was as if his heart was flooded with light. Just the reading of the word. As if it was flooding him with light, he turned, he utterly turned from his life of sin and he spent the rest of his life following Jesus and wrote some of the most important foundational documents outside of Scripture, obviously, some of the most important books in Christian history. We know him today as St. Augustine. Pick up and read. Pick up and read. I want to ask you, the book of Romans It's a very important, powerful book, but as we think of Augustine's story, pick up and read. How many of you, when you engage with God's Word, you have this expectation that He can use any verse, any phrase, any comma, any one chapter of a Bible to utterly change everything about your life? You know, it's a crazy thing to engage with the Word of the living God, isn't it? The God of the universe, the one who spun the world into motion, has communicated. He speaks, and he's able to speak to your heart, and he's written it down so that he can speak to us every day in the quietness of our home. How many of you open up his word and you expect to be changed, to have your life utterly flipped upside down? What if we approach the word of God like that every day? Turn it all around, God. I don't know what I'm doing, but your word says it, so it must be true. Pick up and read, pick up and read. Today we start what I am so excited for, the Book of Romans, a new sermon series. All summer we've studied the book of Exodus and we've gone through that narrative in the Old Testament and today we kick off what is going to be a 10-month journey studying verse by verse through this book called Romans. Romans was a handwritten letter. So I want us to get just a little context here. Romans is found in your New Testament. And what it was, we call it a book because it marks a book in our Bible. But originally, it was a handwritten letter that a guy named Paul wrote to the churches that met in the city of Rome. And it was written about the year 55 or 56 AD. 
Now, a brief apologetic. I want to explain this to us. When I share the gospel with people outside, many of the things, usually one of the first things I hear from people is they say, yeah, but the Bible was written hundreds of years after the events. I hear that all the time. The book of Romans was written in 55 A.D. That's about 20 years after the actual events of Jesus Christ's life. All of the books of the Bible were written, composed, and being circulated within a couple dozen years of the events, usually between 20 to 30 years of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So anyone who says that they were written hundreds of years after the events, frankly, just hasn't read history. They don't know reality. The truth is, the books were written, composed, and being circulated within a couple dozen years of the events, Romans being case in point, about 55 A.D., Now, the first section we're going to jump into is Romans chapter 1, 1 to 15. This is the introduction to Paul's letter. Just like any good letter starts off, when I write love letters to my wife, Sarah, it's been a while since I've done that. I'm sorry. I got to get on that. Men, hold me accountable. Sincer, where are you? You're an elder now. Hold me accountable, right? It says, to my love, Sarah. Maybe it says, dear Sarah. But it's an introduction to the letter. That is what these first few verses are in the book of Romans. It's an introduction that will be explaining who's writing it, to who he's writing it, and for what purpose he's writing it. Now today, as we dig into these first 15 verses, what I want to try to do is pull out two rules for Christian living. Two rules for Christian living that I think we find in these opening verses. Here's the first one. First one. Rule number one. Define yourself boldly as someone loved by God. Right? That's, that's pretty easy, but this is so critical. Romans 1, 1 to 8, define yourself boldly as someone utterly loved by God. Let's jump in. And I left my Bible on the seat. I'm so sorry. I like to preach with my Bible in hand. Thank you, Sarah. Romans chapter 1 reads this way. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what was the first rule? Define yourself boldly as somebody utterly loved by God. In this opening section, we learn a few things from Paul. We learn who he thought his master was, We learn who he thought his office, what he thought his office was, and we learn what he believed his purpose to be. We learn his master, his office, and his purpose. His master, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. I watched an interesting video on a group of scholars debating how they ought to translate the original Greek term that we see in here that says servant. The word is doulos, the Greek word doulos. The literal translation of it is slave. Paul saw himself as a a slave to Jesus. 
He saw the person who, in some sense, owned him, this, this one who had utter control over his life, and the one to which he submitted in all things. He saw himself bound to Jesus Christ. He's not bound to a religion, not bound to a way of life, not bound to a set of principles, not bound to some rules, not bound to who he wants people to think he is, bound to Jesus See, this is where Christianity gets really fun. Many of us have this imprecise definition of Christianity, that it's a religion and a set of rules in life. Paul, opening three words, a servant of Christ. Before Christianity is anything else, it is proclaiming lordship of Jesus in your life and a relationship with the living God through Christ. His master is Christ. His office, he says, called to be an apostle called to be an apostle. Now, Paul had this unique calling on his life. At the very beginning of this letter, he clarifies his role to them. He's saying, I'm an apostle. The word means a sent one, apostello. It's to be sent. He believes that he was one who was uniquely set apart in the history of the Christian church to be sent with the word of God to plant churches in that first few centuries of the church, in the first century of the church. Certainly, the churches that existed in Rome by this time had heard of the great apostle Paul. Now, frankly, they hadn't met him yet. We're going to get to that in just a little bit. He's writing ahead of himself to a group of churches that he's planning on visiting, but he's sending his credentials. He's saying, hey, this is who I am. I'm set apart. I have this calling on my life. Now, not everybody in this room is called to be an apostle. Not everyone is called to be a pastor. Not everyone's called to be a mother or a father or a husband or a wife, but everyone has a calling on their life. Everybody has a unique way in which they've been set apart. I want to ask you, how do you define yourself? If you were to write a letter sending your credentials, set apart, for what? None of us are off the hook on this. What's God called you and set you apart to do? What's the unique calling on your life where you stand in the gap and God says, I'm pouring my kingdom through you? For Paul, he was an apostle. What are you? And then we read his purpose. We see his master. We see his office. And now we see his purpose. He says, set apart for what? For the gospel of God. He set apart for the gospel of God. Paul had this unique calling on his life set apart for the gospel. The word means good news. It's not advice. It's good news. The word of God. The gospel is not advice. It's news. The gospel is not motivation. It's proclamation. I want you to hear that. Those are two very different things. The gospel is not motivation. It's proclamation. Let me illustrate this this way. How many of you are running the marathon? Any crazy people in this room? Yeah, we got a couple. Krista, I see you back there. Brian, do you have your hand raised? No, I didn't think so. Okay, Krista. Krista. I love you, Brian. We got a good crew here, don't we? Man. Krista's running the marathon. Let me tell you the story of the marathon. Marathon goes back way into Greek history. It was the Battle of Marathon that started this story. It was between the Persians and the Greeks, this great battle that took place in Marathon. And the Greeks were way outnumbered, but somehow, and they thought the Persians were going to come and destroy the the city of Athens. 
But they beat him. The Greeks beat the Persians. And they sent a runner named Phidipides. After this great battle had taken place, they sent him on a 26.2-mile journey from the Battle of Marathon back to Athens to go proclaim news. He got there with proclamation. He didn't get there with advice to say, hey, dig trenches, the Persians are coming. Hey, get your battle armor on because the Persians are coming and we gotta get ready because they're gonna come defeat us. He came with news. He said, the enemy has been defeated. We're safe. The battle is over. We can rest in peace. Come out of your homes, celebrate, throw a party because the enemy's been defeated. That's gospel. That's good news. It's not advice. Fidipides didn't come with motivation. He came with proclamation. The gospel is proclamation. The, the enemy's been defeated. That's what the cross is. Satan, sin, and death, the three enemies that humanity faces, Satan, sin, and death, done away with on the cross. It's been defeated. The battle is over. Jesus won, Satan lost, period. That's the end of the story. Someone say hallelujah. Right? When you know what the gospel is, what that means is there's a power in your life. Now, let me get real practical with us for a moment. Does that mean we don't struggle with sin? I want to point this out. It's so important. Gospel, good news, Satan, sin, death, defeated. Are we still in the battle? Well, in one sense, we're in the battle so long as we allow sin in our life to hold us in that battle. What Christians need to be aware of is that you have resurrection power to overcome sin in your life. See, that's the gospel. Good news, victory over sin, Satan, and death. Yeah, but Rafe, I still struggle with sin. Well, that's because you're still attached in some ways to your former life. The more you behold the glory of Jesus, you overcome sin. When you draw close to Jesus, resurrection power and gospel power flows through your life and you actually overcome sin. Do you achieve perfection in this life? Absolutely not. That happens after we die. Do you overcome sin in this life if you're a Christian? Yes. What have you been battling with? If you're in cycles of sin and you just think that's normal and that's how it's going to be for the rest of your life, that's not gospel. Good news is victory over sin, Satan, and death. Good news is victory. You move beyond the sin because Satan has been crushed and defeated and the only thing he can do is lob little grenades at you and be like, am I scary to you? Am I scary to you? And you say, no, because the king is standing before me. Jesus beat you already. Gospel is good news. Satan, sin, and death has been crushed. Now look at this, where he goes with this. Verse 2. Oh man, we're going to have a hard time here. Verse 2. The gospel, now he clarifies what the gospel is, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now what he's doing here, I'm going to show you four descriptors of the gospel that Paul gives us. And what he's doing is introducing us to themes that we're going to be coming back to a lot over the next 10 years. The gospel, here's the first theme, the gospel is that the Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled. That's verse 2. Now, some of you might have heard this before and you've glossed over it and you've never stood with your jaw dropped to the floor over the reality that God wrote about what he was going to do hundreds of years in advance and then did it to a T. If that doesn't shock you, I don't know what will. 
God wrote about everything the Messiah would do long in advance. He'd be born in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah through the line of David. He'd be crucified. He'd rise again. He'd have disciples. He'd establish a kingdom. He'd be born of a virgin. And many more. Jesus shows up on the scene and lives out all of these prophecies that were told way in advance in his life. Now, anyone who's an atheist has to struggle with that. No right-thinking person can look at the facts and say, well, I just don't care. What do you mean you don't care? God wrote literally in advance to a T what was going to happen, and he did it. Paul starts with that. It's almost meant to be a shock to them, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Number two, let's keep going, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. The second thing we see in the gospel is that the gospel is that the Jewish Messiah had come. Now, what do I mean by that? Paul is letting us into one of the bigger debates that we're going to wrestle through as we study through the book of Romans. God's people were originally the Jewish people. The Jewish people, the people of God, were the Israelites. And when Jesus came, many of you heard, maybe you know, Jesus was Jewish by all intents and purposes, right? He was a follower of the law. He was a rabbi of his day in a way. But when he fulfilled all the prophecies, he brought in the Gentiles, all the non-Jewish people. So if you're not naturally Jewish, you are a Gentile in this room. And you've been brought into God's promises that were originally to the Jewish people that have now been expanded to all the non-Jewish people, not all the non-Israelites. The promise was that the Messiah would be a son through the lineage of King David in the Old Testament, very important king in the Old Testament. He was a Jewish Messiah. Jesus shows up and we trace his roots right in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 1, we find out that David was one of the great, 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 great grandfathers of Jesus. He fulfilled it perfectly. Number three, the Gospel is that death has been defeated. Listen to this. And was declared, speaking of Jesus, verse 4, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus rose from the grave. I want you to make sure you get this really clear. What is the gospel? The gospel is that the prophecies have been fulfilled, that the Jewish Messiah would come, and that death would be defeated. This is one of the most amazing moments in history. If I told you today, I am going to die, and then I'm going to raise from the dead, you would call me the biggest fool. You say, no one has that kind of power. Jesus predicted his death, then died under Roman crucifixion after being crucified, and then rose from the grave. We're told that he was declared the Son of God by this resurrection power. What does that mean? It's not that Jesus then became the Son of God after he was resurrected, because if you look carefully at this text, it says that the Son was declared the Son of God. He was already the son, but what we see in Jesus' ascension is it was a bit of a coronation ceremony. As he ascended, it, he was ascending with a new title. 
victor over death, Messiah to the people, sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is the one who is interceding for the saints. He is the one who has been given that glory because of his death and resurrection on your behalf. Jesus takes on this title, not because of he's changed in his nature, but because of what he's accomplished for you on the cross. Number four, the gospel makes us recipients of the grace, listen to this language he uses, of obedience of faith, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. What Paul says is that he's been given this grace to be an apostle, but then he looks at everybody in the Roman church and he says, including you, you've been given the role. You've been given the role to bring the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ to the nations, and not one person is off the hook. We've all received the grace of obedience of faith. Not every person is a, that is a Christian is called to be an apostle, but every Christian is called to the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Now, I want to ask you something. How many of you, when you introduce yourself, or when even you think of who you are, think about yourself in the way Paul does in verses 1 to 6? <laughs> How much of your identity as a person is wrapped up in, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ? You know, the one who was prophesied, the son of David the one who died and ascended on high, who's reaching the nations around the globe and I've been called into that? How many of you, when you think of your identity at the base level of who you are as a person, see yourself that way? How many of you have the boldness to start a letter off to somebody that way? See, has the gospel gotten a hold of you yet? When you know what Jesus Christ has called you into, what he's accomplished for you on the cross, it changes your whole life. Something about you has got to be different. You've got to identify as one who has been boldly and radically loved by God. And what we, do, what we tend to do is we define ourselves based on everything but that. Many of us define ourselves by our mistakes or our weaknesses. We look at the things we haven't accomplished in life and we just say, man, I'm a failure. I'll never live up to so-and-so. I'm not as good at this as they are, and I just wish I could, and so all our energy goes into trying to chase the person who's a little bit better. Guess what? They might be better than you, and you might never be as good as them. God gives out gifts in measures. How many of you have weaknesses in your life or even strengths in your life, and when you think of who you are, you, the first thing you think of is, I'm... I'm this, I'm my job, I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I'm single, I've got a messed up past, I did drugs, I'm an alcoholic. How many of you have done something so bad that when you really think about who you are, you can't get away from one night's mistake? You carry that identity with you. How we see ourselves will shape everything in our life. It will define you, your presence. It, it goes before you, how you actually see yourself. That's what Paul is doing here. It's going before him. This is a letter that's written to people who he's going to meet in some time. 
Many of us carry the scars of who we were into a place like this. And I'm here today to give you news, proclamation. Ready? This is the news. It's not motivation, it's proclamation. You are not your mistakes. You are not your scars. You are not what other people have done to you. You are not your worst day, and you are not your best day. You are not a stockbroker or a banker. You are not a teacher or a student. You are not someone who's constantly in debt. You might be many of those things, but first and foremost, if your faith is in Jesus, you are a servant of the King. You are one who has been adopted into the family of God. That's gotta be your identity. We gotta live in that, we gotta shout hallelujah about that. Because as Christians, if we live like everybody else around us, making our identity who we were or what's been done to us or who we wanna be, then we miss proclamation. Jesus declares you, when you place your faith in him, a servant of Christ set apart for the king to bring about the name of Jesus for the glory of the nations, for the glory of Christ among the nations. Amen? That's your identity. That's how Paul begins this letter. And that's where we got to begin. Rule number one for Christian living, define and identify yourself boldly as one who is loved radically by God. Rule number two. Now, I only got two rules today. Here's the second one. First things first, pray. First things first, pray. Jump in with me, verses eight. First, wonder where I got this from. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul sets priorities straight. Now a bit of humor for you. As you keep reading the book of Romans, he never comes back and tells us what second is. It's like he lost track of where he started his letter. He has a Rafe mind. He got real excited and never came back to the first thing he was talking about. But for him, it was the most important thing. First, he says, I thank my God for you. He says, first, I thank my God for you. Paul's thanksgiving was through Jesus for the believers in Rome. In other words, because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, he is able to powerfully pray for people that he's never met. That's accomplished because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Jesus has made a way for us to have relationship with God, sinners like us, in the hands of God. We have a relationship with God, and now he can pray for people he's never met because of what Christ has done. I hope you're seeing this theme already. The cross is the lens by which Christians see everything. It's got to become, and this is what I hope happens with us by studying Romans. I hope that it literally is the lens by which we see our whole world. We, we can't engage with anything without thinking Jesus, death, and resurrection. It just is the filter by everything. All the decisions we make. We're, we're going to be so peculiar to our neighbors in the South Loop that they're going to be like, what happened to you? because we see the cross in front of everything. That's what Paul does. And he's got this longing to visit Rome, verses 11 through 13. For I long to see you, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. 
I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, this is just good context for us to understand as we get into Romans. There was already a church growing in Rome at the time. Let me put a map up for us. Rome is still where Rome is today. So if you know where Rome is, same place on the map as you can see it. That circle on the right-hand side, that's where Paul in his missionary journeys had kind of already traveled. He, had, he was on the end of his third missionary journey when he writes this letter. He's on his way down to Jerusalem to bring a financial gift that he had collected from a bunch of churches, and he's going to drop it off at Jerusalem. And then he's got this prayer. Notice, he wants to go where he hasn't been before. His final aim is to get to Spain. Now, how do we know that? Later on in the book of Romans, he says this, Romans 15, verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul's writing this letter to the Romans and he's saying, hey Romans, I want to come to you and I want to have a harvest among you. I want to encourage you. You've never had an apostle with you. None of the other apostles, as far as we know in church history, ever made it to Rome before Paul. Likely what happened is that at that first Pentecost, you remember Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2? That first Pentecost where 3,000 people believed, and we're told that people from many nations were there listening. There were probably some Roman Jewish people who were there who believed on Jesus Christ and went back to the Jewish community that was living up in Rome at the time, and they went and started churches. Now, that's very important context for us. They've never had apostolic leadership. They didn't have these letters circulating around Rome yet. And so they're starting and establishing these churches, but there isn't necessarily a lot of grounding in how is this supposed to work and, and how is this all tied together and how do we think rightly as followers of Christ? So when we look at the book of Romans, what we're going to find is that we're getting into some of the most dense theology in the entire Bible. Paul was an intellectual elite of his day, and he writes into theology in these painstaking details to really make sure this Roman church who had never had apostolic leadership begins to lay a foundation of what they believe, why they believe it, and how they ought to live out their faith in sight of a city that was as pagan as Rome was at the day. But he says, first things first, I pray for you ceaselessly. As a church, we got to make sure we get our order of things straight. This is a hard thing for me. I'm going to confess to you. My, that my nature, the way I'm wired, is go, go, go. I, I, I love new things. I love starting things and getting them going and, and then chasing after things and climbing mountains. And that's kind of my, that's like how I'm wired naturally. And I have to commit myself to the work of prayer. I don't know if you've ever heard that language before. The work of prayer because if I don't commit myself to the work of prayer, I find myself going about business, <laughs> the business of the church, leading and shepherding and caring for this flock without stopping to depend on Jesus for what we're doing. See, we got to be a prayer-filled church. Yesterday, I sent an email out to all the partners. If, you were, if you're a member here at Park Community Church, you got that email. And I said, guys, we're starting a new sermon series tomorrow. And I pray that this is going to have ripple effects for generations. I think Romans could, could just change us as a people. But we got to make sure we do first things first. We got to pray. And members, will you come before service and pray for us 
So a handful of folks met in the prayer room this morning and we just prayed, prayed over this room, prayed over this sermon, prayed over the launch of the adoption fund, prayed over the sermon series. Why? Because Paul lays a principle for us. If the message of the gospel is true, then the first move of followers of Christ is not do, but it's pray. The first move of a follower of Christ, someone who believes that Jesus is the head of the church and is able to bring about resurrection power in any number of ways, their first move is, God, we're desperate for you to show up and do something here. We can't do it on our own. We don't have the strength. We're not smart enough, wise enough, or holy enough. In fact, we're all the opposite of that. But you're building your church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So we're praying to the one whose shoulders this burden lies on. I want to call you into that as a church. We must pray. My brother Jared down here, he comes every Sunday before service and he's walking around this room every Sunday. Prays over every chair, every room. I watch him walk through every door. He prays over every door that as we walk through will be impacted by the gospel. How about we get some of that in this room? We need to be moving each other towards prayer. Look at how he closes this section. Verse 14 and 15. I'm under obligation both to Greek and barbarian, both to wise and to foolish. Hear the poetry. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. All right, what's he saying, church? You better know this one now because I preach this message about every other week. I'm under obligation to Greeks and barbarian, both to wise and to the foolish. Greek and barbarian, that is language that was very common in their day. Who were the Greeks? The Greeks saw themselves as elite. They saw themselves as wise. They were poets. They were playwrights. They were warriors. They, they were the ones who were shaping culture of their day. Who were the barbarians? Well, the name gives it away. They were barbaric. They were the ones that the Greeks were afraid of. They were out there somewhere else. They were the ones who were causing problems on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. They were the ones that were looked down upon. In that day, there was some kind of a class system that was happening in the Roman Empire, and the barbarians certainly were not in the same place as the Greeks. Paul cuts right through that baloney, and he says, in the kingdom of God, there is no social hierarchy. Let me try to put this in some modern terms for us. The same gospel that saves a high school gang member in Englewood saves an early retirement investment banker in Lincoln Park. Isn't that good news? That's how Paul is ending this right here. The same gospel that saves Muslims born in Iran saves secular kids born in Chicago. That's good news. There's no hierarchy here in the kingdom of God. The same gospel that saves transgender teenagers saves straight teenagers. Isn't that good news? That's really good news because we all need salvation through Jesus Christ. The same gospel that saves a sinner like me saves sinners like you. That's really good news because I know the sins I've made in my life, and if it weren't for the grace of God, I wouldn't be standing before you today. Paul looks out over the known landscape. He says, I'm under obligation both to Greek and to barbarian, to wise and foolish. That's a way of saying, I'm hearing some stuff that's happening in your church, and I'm going to cut through it really quickly. Any way you think you're separated based on social values, 
based on background, story, color of skin, language, accent, how you think, what you think, how you do things, how you don't do things, where you live or where you don't live, what degree you have, what degree you don't have, what your daddy did or what your daddy didn't do. However you separate yourself, it is not the case in the church, so you better get that straight before I come visit you. That's Paul. That's the multi-ethnic church, and that's what we stand for as a church. Paul was adamant. Now, Park, I want to look at us. First things first, we got to pray. We got some confession to do as a body. This church has made some incredible strides on moving towards being a multi-ethnic church. But today in America, Sunday is still one of the most segregated hours in in our country. And we're part of the larger body. We're part of the larger body. And it's not good enough to just come together in a room like this and hear a message. We gotta do life together. We gotta celebrate. We gotta move next door to each other. We gotta have family dinners around each other. And first things first, we gotta pray together. We gotta be on our knees praying for the power of God to move powerfully in our lives, in this church, in each other's lives. Park, welcome to the book of Romans. We got a journey ahead of us. Paul wrote this letter to lay a foundation of theology to build our life upon. He wants to root us in the gospel so deeply that the world would take notice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we got much work to do. God, as we study this book, we pray that you would lead us powerfully. We pray that your word would be the one that we submit underneath, God, that we would be led by you into truth, to reformation, that you would change us. We want to leave here changed by Jesus. And so have your way with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.